0: listeners and welcome to ohio mysteries we will get to our podcast in a moment but first we want to talk about the success we have been having and it's all because of you we have been able to get some sponsors we want to show our sponsors that we can move traffic to their page if you could just head on over to betterhelp.com slash ohio mysteries it will show them that we are worth sponsoring and now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder. And with us, as always, is our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal.
1: Hi, everybody. Tonight, we've got an unsolved homicide out of Muskingum County. A father, grandfather, and businessman so endeared to those who knew him he was publicly mourned for months. But we're going to tell the story a little differently than we usually do, because as it turns out, Leland Eugene Cannon's entire 74-year life played out in the pages of his hometown newspaper. You see, Leyland was born in East Fultonham, a hamlet in Newton Township, and served by the Zanesville Times Recorder. And like many newspapers in small-town America, the Times Recorder kept its readers informed on everything from weddings, new births, and military announcements to those who were paying speeding tickets or running behind on their property tax bill or even spending time in the hospital. When I was researching Leyland's case, I realized we had a rare opportunity to meet this gentleman through dozens of announcements and news stories that appeared as his life unfolded, rather than merely knowing him through his tragic death. Now, I have to say, I'm not 100% sure whether he pronounced his name Leyland or Leland. The internet shows the unusual spelling as pronounced both ways. So, to play it safe and avoid me choosing the wrong pronunciation throughout the entire episode— We're going to call him what most folks called him, Buster. So, let's meet Buster. And remember, everything I'm going to tell you appeared in his hometown newspaper over a period that spanned his 74 years. Buster is born in East Fultonham on August the 13th, 1925. He will be the only child for Elmo and Hazel Cannon. When he was just three years old, his father was granted a divorce and full custody of Buster. Elmo later remarried to a woman named Emma, who raised Buster as her own. Elmo and Emma will end up living the rest of their lives in East Fultonham, but Buster is going to get a little taste of the world. When next he appears in the paper, he's an 18-year-old young man headed off to World War II. It's December the 16th, 1943, and the Muskingum County Selective Services Board announces Buster has passed his final exam in Columbus and is being accepted into the Navy. One month later, he completes basic training at the Great Lakes Station in Illinois and is granted a nine day leave before beginning his tour of duty. With the exception of probable visits home, Buster is gone for several years. He serves as a medical corpsman, working with a team of primary caregivers aboard naval and marine ships during the war. But he also goes on to serve in the Far East. And Korea. Buster's military service ends in 1952 and he returns home. By now, he's married to Mildred Fitzpatrick, who grew up in Chicago. The pair settle into a home on South 6th Street in Newton Township and they have two sons, Leland Jr. and Cecil. In 1954, the couple welcomes a third son into their family. But little Martin is sick from birth. He only survives two months and dies at home in October of that year. In 1958, Buster opens a new business in the county seat of Zanesville. It's a print shop called Omega Studios at 213 Woodlawn Avenue. The paper publishes a photo of Buster looking dashing in a suit and runs a small story about how the new shop is offering The Last Word in specialized printing and silk screening. Buster says he's missed being part of the Zanesville scene and is looking forward to seeing some familiar faces about town. Now maybe the print studio isn't bringing in quite enough for Buster's growing family because in 1961 we learn he's taken a second job with the Newton local schools as a bus driver. And the year after that, Buster ends up in a published list of Muskingum County residents who were delinquent on their taxes. He owed $13.97. The year after that, in September of 1963, Buster and Mildred are granted a divorce. But Buster doesn't appear to have been lonely for long. By July of 1965, he's clearly married again because the Times Recorder lets us know he and his wife, Nancy, are bringing home a new son, born at Good Samaritan Hospital on the 10th of that month. We're going to learn a lot about his very busy second wife in a few years. But first, the newspaper catches us up on Buster's eldest, Leyland Jr., and how he's been following in his father's footsteps. In 1966, The 18-year-old junior became an Army private at Fort Sam Houston in Texas. And, like his dad, he's chosen a medical field. A small item in the paper the next year notes that he just completed a medical laboratory procedures course at the Brooke Army Medical Center. In 1968, Buster shows up on that pesky delinquent tax roll again this time for the grand sum of $40.16. Now, about that second, Mrs. Leyland Cannon. She was pretty active in the community. The Cannons belonged to the White Cottage Methodist Church, where Nancy served on various committees and hosted meetings of the Women's Society but the spotlight shone brightest in July of 1969 when she won the Muskingum County Electric Bakerama. Nancy took first place for her cherry pie, which advanced her to the finals at the Ohio State Fair. Her picture in the paper shows a pretty lady smiling brightly and holding her pie with its perfect lattice crust. In this story, we also learned that Nancy grew up as Nancy Daniel in nearby Roseville, where she was already a baking phenom as a high school junior. While at Roseville High, she was named a regional champion in a national cherry pie contest in Chicago. She even won an electric range. Matter of fact, it was that range that she used to bake her latest award winner. In Nancy's newspaper profile, we also learn how much Buster's family has grown. He and Nancy's son, Christopher, is now four years old, but they also added a daughter, Johanna, a year after his birth. Buster was also stepfather to Nancy's eight-year-old son, Daniel. Of course, this is all in addition to Buster's son, Cecil, now 15, and Leland Jr., who is still in the Army. In 1970, We find out 45-year-old Buster got a ticket for speeding. I think most of us have been there, right? And the next year, Nancy is in the paper again for winning the countywide baking contest. This time, it's for her cherry cheese pie. Her son Christopher isn't impressed. The six-year-old tells a reporter he prefers pecan pie. But little sister Johanna, now five, can't wait to be like her mama. She's been making her own mini cherry pies using her personal miniature rolling pin. When next we hear of the cannons, Buster's eldest, Leyland Jr., is making news again. He's overseas now. In October of 1971, he's in Germany, where he's become a personnel specialist in the brigade's 1st Signal Battalion. And he's got a wife, Judy. By 1974, Jr. is back on American soil, but still in the military. The Times recorder publishes his picture with the news that he's just graduated from the non-commissioned officers' academy in Fort Riley, Kansas. We don't know what's happening to Buster and Nancy in the decade after she won her countywide pie contest, but we do know it doesn't end well. In June of 1979, they divorce. In 1987, Buster's mom, Emma, dies. She was 79. Two years later, Buster will lose his dad, Elmo. Elmo had been a conductor for the New York Central Railroad for 46 years before retiring. He passed away in 1989 at the age of 82. Culture and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This all brings us to January of 2000, the start of a new century and a new millennium. Buster is now 74 years old and a grandfather of four. He's living alone on Axline Avenue in East Fultonham. It's the house that had been home to his parents for so long, but he's far from being on his own. Living right across the street is his daughter, Johanna, and his 15-year-old granddaughter, Erin. Buster still has his print shop, and he's a man about town. He knows everyone, and everyone knows him. People think of him as East Fultonham's elder statesman. But this is where Buster's story comes to an end in one violent, inexplicable act. January 13, 2000, was a Thursday. The last person to see Buster alive was a cleaning lady who worked for him. She left his home about 6.30 that evening. Buster's daughter, Johanna, stopped by her father's house to pick up her mail. It's not clear why, but apparently there was a convenience issue. Buster always collected their mail and put hers either in his truck on the street or in his car in the garage for her to get. She looked both places, but there was no mail, so she went home empty-handed. That evening, Johanna's daughter Erin told her mom she was going over to Grandpa Buster's house to use his hot tub. But the pair noticed a dark-colored car in front of the house and figured he must have company. So she didn't go. The next morning, Johanna went to work at Longeberger, maker of those famous baskets. She had barely started her shift when she got a call. Come home, the caller said. Something has happened to her father. She figured it was bad. Maybe he'd died in his sleep. But as Johanna pulled around the corner in view of her dad's home, the police cars lining the street told her it was much worse. Her brother, Cecil, was the one who had found Buster. It entered the house around 9.45 a.m. and found him on the floor of the TV room. Authorities determined Buster had been killed by blows to the back of his head with a blunt object. The weapon was never recovered. There were no signs of forced entry, but whatever happened, Buster fought back. The struggle was obvious. Police suspected robbery was the motive, though the house was not ransacked. Detectives obtained fingerprints from the scene that don't belong to the family, they have compared them multiple times against potential suspects, but have never found a match. Until now, Leyland Eugene Cannon's story has been told by simple facts and milestones documented by the local paper. But in death, we get to learn just how much he meant to people. Buster's 15-year-old granddaughter, Erin Adolph, wrote a letter to the newspaper pleading for help in finding her grandpa's killer. "'He was my friend, my grandpa, my role model,' she said. "'But most of all, he was my hero. "'Whenever I was hurt, I would run to Grandpa's house, and he would take care of me. "'From the time I cut my hand peeling potatoes and I didn't want my mom to know,' to the time I cut my arm on a piece of glass, to the time I got a bad sunburn. No matter what, he just knew what to do. Aaron said Grandpa Buster would help anyone in need. Everyone cared deeply for him, because no matter what flaws you had, he would look over them and help, she wrote. Everyone who knew him adored him. Buster was a regular at Eagle Sticks, a golf club and restaurant. General Manager Steve Evick said Buster was family. He was like a dad to all the girls on our waitstaff here, he said. He was one of our favorite sons, and we certainly do miss him. Buster visited the restaurant just about every day for lunch, and he was the final say on the special of the day. Let me tell you, the manager said, if it didn't pass Leigh's test, then we would have to change it, spice it up, do something to it. The manager said he also witnessed the many times Buster would open his wallet to help someone in need, which made robbery such a worthless motive. He wouldn't bat an eye to give someone 15 or $20, the manager said, and not expect anything in return. Daughter Johanna couldn't imagine why someone would take her father's life. He was the sweetest, most gentle man I've ever met, she said. He would never have hurt anyone. A neighbor, Pete Rose, told the Times Recorder the same thing. He was a good fellow, Buster was. I don't know of any enemies he ever had. Buster's stepson, Daniel Holcroft also wrote an open letter about the man who had raised him. Buster had been his dad for 35 years, ever since his mother Nancy married him when Daniel was just three years old. I had asthma as a child, and Dad gave me allergy shots every week, Dan wrote. He exposed me to reading and good books because I was a puny little runt who was sick a lot. What he gave me, by his soft-spoken word, his gentleness... His caring and understanding ways is something that money could never buy. He never raised his voice to me, but he paddled my fanny a couple of times, and I am sure I needed it. Dad and I could talk about anything. I traveled all over the world in our National Geographic books. Dad could hardly believe I grew to six foot one inch, but I could never fill his shoes. A month later, Buster's children put up a $5,000 reward for information. They wanted to do it earlier, but the sheriff had asked them to wait until they had exhausted all the leads they were already looking into. In 2001, the family raised the reward to $15,000. That summer, a letter appeared in the Times recorder from Buster's ex-wife, Nancy, who was certain that more than one person was involved in his death. She addressed her letter to his killers. Do you feel powerful hitting a 74-year-old man in the head with a weapon multiple times? What did Leyland Cannon actually do to you to deserve that kind of bludgeoning that you inflicted on him? When you look in the mirror in the morning, do you see a cold-blooded murderer? In a 2012 interview, Johanna told the Times Recorder about the many ways her father's murder had changed her life. She never hesitated before to leave her keys in the car or leave her front door unlocked. Afterward, she was terrified to leave home after dark. Eventually, she left her home on Axe Line because it hurt too much to see the house across the street where her father had lived "'and died. "'It was an unbelievable feeling of violation,' she said, "'and I didn't want to live there anymore. "'There are things that just don't go away.'" In that 2012 story, Sheriff Detective Todd Maley said, "'In the beginning, there were lots of leads to pursue. "'Buster had a reputation for loaning money to a lot of people, "'so there were multiple avenues to explore.'" But the leads dwindled, and the tips ran out. Detective Maley said he was hopeful the development of touch DNA, the ability to get a profile of skin cells that people leave on things they touch, might crack the case. After his death, Buster's granddaughter Erin talked about how painful it would be to go through the milestones of her own life without her grandpa. It made me think of all those tiny announcements in hometown newspapers and how some of the most joyful ones that you see might also hide a tinge of loss and grief. A friend of grandpa's used to say that everyone is like a candle, Aaron said. How could someone have taken it upon themselves to put that flame out for my grandpa? Nothing will ever be the same in my life.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. Also, check us out at killerpodcasts.com. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis.